Well, this morning we continue our study of the doctrines of grace and in particular why the doctrines of grace matter. We have seen how the doctrines of grace affect our worship, affect our worldview, how the doctrines of grace affects evangelism and missions, how it affects our sanctification, how it affects our assurance of salvation. And so today I want to talk about how the doctrines of grace affect our parenting. Now today I have a discipleship group that will be meeting this afternoon. It is on the subject of biblical parenting. So this is kind of a part of that discipleship group, but at the same time a part of why the doctrines of grace matter. And so we'll see some ways in which the doctrines of grace affect, inform, and shape our parenting. The doctrines of grace, rightly understood and applied, produces, we're going to talk about six things it produces. So here's my outline. It produces believing parents, and I'll explain that in a moment, proclaiming parents, trusting parents, praying parents, loving parents, and persevering parents. So the doctrines of grace, rightly understood and applied, produces believing parents, proclaiming parents, trusting parents, praying parents, loving parents, and persevering parents. First of all, the doctrines of grace produces believing parents. We are believing parents by the grace of God who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. We have believed the gospel. And the Bible not only proclaims how a sinner is reconciled to God, but the Bible, in all its sufficiency, teaches us concerning the responsibility of parenting. And therefore, as believing parents who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, we need to believe the whole counsel of God concerning our children and our parenting. Now, what does the Bible teach about our children that we must believe. Well, here's the statement. It's not new. I preached on these things through the years, but here's the statement of what we are to believe. Not the only thing, but just in summary this morning of some things we're going to understand about our children and parenting. Our children are gifts from God, made in the image of God, yet sinners who are accountable to God and in need of the grace of God. So here's what the Bible teaches about our children that we must believe. Our children are gifts from God, made in the image of God, yet sinners who are accountable to God and in need of the grace of God. Now again, that's not new. It's not something that I haven't preached or taught on many times before. But I think it needs to be reiterated over and over again. We need to be reminded as parents over and over again If we are to give glory to God in our relationship to our children, if we are to do them good, we must believe God's word about our children and then parent in light of that. So again, our children are gifts from God, made in the image of God, who are sinners accountable to God and in need of the grace of God. Now we're going to consider a number of passages this morning But let's begin with Psalm 127. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 127. And here we see that children are gifts from God. 
We see that in Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. The Word of God says this, Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Notice the words that are used to describe children. Gift, reward, and then it says how blessed, how happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Some view children as a burden. The world often views children as a a burden or a liability. Some view children as a restriction of freedom. Some view children as a hindrance to the marriage relationship. But none of those attitudes are biblical or godly. Children are a gift from God. And this view of children is rooted in a number of things biblically. It's rooted in the doctrine of God, who is the creator of life. He is the creator. And therefore, what God has given in the gift of children is from the hand of God. We rejoice often when a child is born and we have the privilege to then pray for those parents and pray for that child. And we see the handiwork of God in that infant, in that child. Children are a gift from God and that's rooted in the sanctity of human life because God is the creator. Human life is sacred. It's holy. And it's also rooted in the goodness of procreation. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and that command in marriage is a holy command. There is a goodness to procreation in God's design in marriage. So children are not a punishment, they're a reward. They're not a burden, they are a blessing. And so my question is, parents, do you believe that? And does your parenting reflect that you believe that your children are a gift from God? There may be times that it does not seem like they are gifts from God, but we must believe God's word during those times. We must be believing parents, believing what God's word says about our children. And so our children are gifts from God, but then they're also made in the image of God. That is, they were created by God and in his image. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so another thing we need to believe and be reminded is they're not only gifts from God, but they are made in the image of God. Sometimes people refer to their pets as their children. And what is so egregious and blasphemous about that is that it fails to recognize and believe that there is a distinction between God's creation of human beings and God's creation of animals. Animals are not made in the image of God. Children are made in the image of God. There's a difference when an animal dies and when a child dies. One dies and that's all that there is. The animal has no soul. The animal is not accountable to God as a moral agent. But human beings have a soul and they will give an account to God. They will spend eternity in heaven or hell. And so there is a distinction between man, male and female, as we read, made in the image of God, and 
the rest of creation and animals. Today, sadly, children are diminished to less than animals, while animals are treated better than human beings. We need to look no further than abortion to see this. On the one hand, abortion is the logical conclusion of secular humanism, the religion of evolution, atheism. If people believe there's nothing, we're nothing more than a product of evolution, then there's nothing wrong with butchering and murdering preborn babies. But at the same time, while devaluing unborn babies made in the image of God and killing them with no thought, many in the world would give so-called rights to animals. Now, I'm not advocating mistreating animals in any way. But I am saying there's a distinction between human beings made in the image of God and animals. And when no distinction is made between animals and human beings, we see the wickedness of the human heart. We see the evidence of total depravity. Now, the fact that our children bear the image of God is important to parenting. It means this, parents, that your children have a knowledge of God. They have a knowledge of God. In Romans chapter 1, it speaks of God's revelation of himself in creation but also in the hearts of human beings. It tells us in Romans 1.19 that that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So that speaks of a knowledge of God that is from within, we might say. Human beings are born with an innate knowledge of God. And for them to deny that is to suppress the truth that is evident about God Around them, he created things. When you look at that, it is the revelation that there is a God, that he exists. They know there's a God from creation, but he's also made it evident to them. So you can be sure that your children have a knowledge of God. But they need to be taught specifically about who God is from the word of God, the scriptures. And so that is a part of bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're to bring them up by teaching them specifically what God has said in his written word regarding who he is and our relationship to him. And so this means you believe God's word and you teach it to your children. Now, as image bearers, our children not only have the knowledge of God, but as I said, they have a conscience. They know there's a God. And so later in Romans chapter 2, it speaks of the law of God written on hearts and consciences bearing witness to that. They have a conscience. They they know in some way through conscience that God has written the law on the heart, and therefore they know, for example, it's wrong to be angry. You, You can explain to a very young child that that was wrong, that was being angry. They understand that. Children know that it's wrong to kill. They know that murder is wrong because they have a conscience. It's those made in the image of God, the law of God's written on the heart. And that conscience, though, has been affected by sin. They will, at times, suppress the truth of the moral law of God written upon the heart. And so you have to bring to bear upon their souls and upon their consciences the truth of the Word of God. And so part of our responsibility as parents is to inform the consciences of our children and bind their consciences with the Word of God. You teach them God's holy standard, God's holy word, that their conscience would be bound by it. You teach them God's word that they might see themselves as sinners, 
lawbreakers, guilty before a holy God. You believe God's word. Yes, they're image bearers. They're made in the image of God. They have a knowledge of God. They have a conscience. But they're also sinners. They're sinners who are accountable to God. In Psalm 51, verse 5, David acknowledges this when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not talking about the manner in which he was conceived. He wasn't saying that his mother conceived him through some sinful means. He is talking about the state of his soul at conception. I was brought forth in iniquity, in a state of sin. My mother conceived me in that, when she conceived me, I was in a state of sin spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, even in the womb. Our children are born as sinners in a state of sin and spiritual death. And so as precious as they are, as we see God's handiwork and glorify God for his work of creation, understanding they're made in the image of God and they bear the mark of that image and they're accountable to God. They have this, nonetheless, inherited sin, this fallen, corrupt nature, just like we do. And therefore, they will sin. Why? Because they are sinners. So here's where we see the intersection of the doctrines of grace and our parenting. It's our children are gifts from God, made in the image of God, with a knowledge of God, and with a conscience. But they're also sinners, Totally depraved. Remember, because of the fall of man, every person is born in a state of sin and that this state has affected every aspect of that person's being, mind, affections, and will so that we're unable and unwilling to come to Jesus Christ apart from the supernatural work of God and regeneration. Is that true of our children as well? Do you believe the doctrine of total depravity when it comes to your children? And so this is why I began with saying, when we understand and rightly apply the doctrines of grace that I preached on those weeks, when we understand the doctrine of total depravity, then we understand our children are sinners, and we believe that to be true of them, and that affects how we then parent them. Let me have you turn to a proverb, Proverbs 22, verse 15. And here we see a very clear declaration of the depravity of children. The depravity of children. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Now, if you're in my parenting class, we're going to talk about the second part of that verse at some point in our discipleship group. But this morning, I want us to focus on the first part of that. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. This is a statement of the doctrine of depravity in regards to our children. Now, this foolishness is not silliness, which can characterize our children because of their immaturity. Nor does it refer to their lack of judgment. That is true of children. They're immature. They have a lack of judgment. Nor is this referring to childishness. They're children, so they will be childish at times. That's what characterizes them. When it says foolishness, 
is speaking of their spiritual state and their sinfulness. And so in the book of Proverbs, the words fool, folly, foolish, and foolishness are words that refer to the sinful condition of the heart and the sin that proceeds out of that sinful heart. And so this is a statement of the spiritual state of children from birth. We can be sure that although they're gifts from God, made in the image of God, they are nonetheless born sinners who go their own way. Children are not morally neutral. They're not fundamentally or basically good in the sight of God. They're not flowers waiting to blossom and self-actualize, as the world might define it. They are sinners and rebels who will worship themselves, who will worship idols, if they are not saved by the grace of God. Parents, you must believe what God's Word says about your children. Be a believing parent who believes what God's Word says about your child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of every child, and your child is no exception. Now, how might this foolishness be bound up in the heart of a child? And how might it be manifested? Well, that's a good study for us as parents. To ask that question from the book of Proverbs, for example, if foolishness is bound up in the heart of of a child, then how might that manifest itself? How might I see that? What are some of the characteristics of foolishness and folly in the book of Proverbs? Well, as you study that, you'll see certain characteristics that manifest themselves in various ways and for a number of reasons in children. But it's true of every child. For example, as you study the book of Proverbs, it says that the mouth of fools spouts folly in Proverbs 15, verse 2. So you can be sure, parents, that what's going to come out of the mouths of your children at times is going to be folly. Now, again, we're not talking about immaturity as children. We're not talking about childishness or silliness. We're talking about sin. There's going to be sin. Their tongues will manifest the foolishness of their hearts. One of the ways you'll see that is they will be characterized by quarreling and strife. It says in Proverbs 20, verse, chapter 20, verse 3, any fool will quarrel. And so conflict will come from your children because of their spiritual state. They'll be characterized by a lack of self-control and anger. Proverbs 14, verse 7 speaks of a quick-tempered man who acts foolishly. Quick-tempered, angry. You see this from children, even from a very young age. They don't get something they want, so they yell, they scream. They demand it in that particular way. No, they may not be consciously thinking of the moral law of God, obviously, and be aware of Proverbs 14, 17. But as they grow up, you better bind their consciences with the word of God. But you have a description there of why that's taking place. It's because of the foolishness of the heart. You say, why why does my child lie? I didn't teach them to lie. Because Proverbs 14.8 says the foolishness of fools is deceit. That's one of the things that characterizes a sinful heart. And therefore, as they grow up, they may make light of their sin. Proverbs 14, verse 9, fools mock at sin. They may mock at their sin. They may make light of their sin. So why don't my children listen to instruction? Why are they prideful when I, as a parent, wiser than they, give them instruction from the Word of God? Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So one of the characteristics you see as a child, the foolishness bound up in the heart is they will 
think they know better than you as a parent, even as you teach them the Word of God. They will be characterized by rejecting discipline. Proverbs 5, 15, verse 5, a fool rejects his father's discipline. And all this is directed ultimately toward God. Proverbs 19, verse 3, the foolishness of a man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. They are by nature rebels against God because they are born in that spiritual state of death and rebellion and sin. Parents must understand that when children are not interested in spiritual things, it's because of the condition of their heart. So these are some of the characteristics of a foolish heart that's bound up in the heart of a child. And so as parents, we must believe God's word. We don't misdiagnose the problem with our children. They're sinners. It's not simply a stage they're going through. It's not just their personality. It's not a lack of sleep. As I've said before, they may be sleepy, but they're sleepy sinners. They have a sinful heart bound up with foolishness. And if you neglect the biblical teaching on the sinfulness of man, total depravity, and instead believe your children are basically good, a blank page, then of course you will not see the need for correction, for discipline, or even the salvation of your children. But if you understand and believe God's word concerning our sin, our, the sinful state of our children, then you also believe God's word regarding the rod of discipline, the need for reproof and instruction, and the evangelism of our children. So you can see how understanding the doctrines of grace helps us not only have, as we talked about, a biblical worldview. What's wrong with the world? What's a fallen world? What's wrong with my child? They're fallen. And we know that, don't we? So Proverbs 22.15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, bound up is a very descriptive. It's tied, tied around it, and it's bound up. And when I see the phrase bound up, I sometimes think of how a baseball is made. I don't know if you're familiar with how a baseball is made. I've done a little research on that in the past. The diameter of a baseball is just under three inches. And in the middle of it is a rubber core and then a layer of cork. And this forms what they call the pill of the baseball. It's the inside of the baseball. This pill or center of the baseball accounts for less than half its size. At that point when they're creating a baseball, that pill that's rubber and cork is about the size of a quarter, the diameter of a quarter. But after the pill is formed, then computer-controlled machines tightly wind yarn around that pill. And it starts with three layers of wool. The first layer is 121 yards of four-ply yarn. And the second is 45 yards of another three-ply yarn. And the third is a 53 yards of three-ply yarn. Then the fourth layer is added, and that's 150 yards of fine poly cotton finishing yarn, which is wrapped around the ball to protect the wool yarn and to hold it in place. That's 369 yards of yarn tightly wrapped around the core 
of the pill, which is about the size of a quarter. You can imagine 369 yards, over three football field longs of yarn that is tightly bound up around the pill of that baseball. Now that's being bound up. When I think of the heart of a child being like a baseball, I think of foolishness just being bound up and tightly wound around the heart. They are totally depraved. It's not yarn, it's foolishness that is tightly bound around their hearts. That's their spiritual condition. They're gifts from God. They're made in the image of God, and we rejoice with that. They have a knowledge of God, a conscience, but in their totally depraved state, they're going to want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness because foolishness is bound up in their hearts. And they are moral agents who will give an account to God. They'll spend eternity in heaven or in hell. They will either continue in that rebellion against God, remain in unbelief and reject the gospel, or they will obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, place their faith in him alone for the forgiveness of their sin. This is how you should think about your children. Now, there are a lot of ways we should think. It's not the only way, but it is an essential way, a necessary way we must think about our children. And this should shape our parenting. We must believe God's word concerning their hearts. They are totally depraved. Parenting is temporary, right? One day they will leave us. You won't change diapers forever. You won't be disciplining your children forever. You won't be teaching them and training them forever. But while you are parenting them temporarily, you have to keep eternal things in mind. You must parent with eternity in mind. Our children are gifts from God, made in the image of God, with a knowledge of God, with a conscience that needs to be bound by the word of God. But they're sinners in need of the grace of God. And therefore, the gospel must be the centerpiece of your relationship with them. And so you can see how the doctrines of grace shape and inform our parenting. How important it is for us to believe what God has said about the state of our children. So believing God's word concerning our children, fallen, totally depraved, leads us then to be not just believing parents about that, but proclaiming parents. In light of that, that's why the centerpiece is the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Teach your children that they are sinners in need of being reconciled to God. Children should be taught about their spiritual condition. And so parents, don't shy away from teaching your children that they are sinners. Discipline is an opportunity to teach them the reason why they are disobedient. It's an opportunity to teach them that there is something called sin, that there is depravity, that their hearts are bound up by foolishness. And that the main issue is that they would have new hearts and be reconciled to God that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean lambasting your children in anger. In a minute, we'll talk about the doctrines of grace should shape our parenting in such a way that we are loving parents. But I'm talking about teaching them these things because we love them. Teach your children about the wrath of God towards sinners, but teach them about the mercy of God in Christ. 
be a proclaiming parent, proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because this is the greatest need of your child. Their greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Therefore, your ultimate goal in parenting is the salvation of your children. The goal is not to have well-behaved children. Again, we want our children to be well-behaved. That's another subject. Remember in total depravity, why don't people act as sinful as they possibly could are in their state and condition? Because God in His sovereignty and God in His providence restrains the wickedness of the human heart, and He does that in various means. Government is one of those. The restraint in the government of the home is one of those. And so you should seek to have well-behaved children. You should restrain the wickedness of their heart. But the ultimate goal is their salvation. Some have the goal that their children will be successful athletes. Good-looking children, cultured children, educated and intellectual. Now, it's okay to want to have good-looking children. You get them braces if you can afford it, right? You want children to be educated? None of these, though, are the ultimate goal and focus. Your child's greatest need is to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Therefore, your parenting must be gospel-centered. Your discipline must be gospel-centered. Your instruction must be gospel-centered. You must discipline your children with the goal that your children would see the foolishness of their hearts toward God, their sinfulness, and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. We must be believing parents, believing what God's Word says about the state of our children, but that leads us to be proclaiming parents who proclaim the gospel to our children and have the gospel as the centerpiece of our parenting. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, in my parenting class, we're going to eventually be taking that verse piece by piece and expositing that and understanding it. But this morning, understand that we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. At the heart of this command to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is the gospel. Everything in our discipline and instruction must come from and flow out of the gospel. So we never get away from the gospel as the centerpiece, from proclaiming the gospel as the centerpiece of our parenting. When we correct their behavior, when we teach them that they must do this or that, we again bring the Word of God in to show them their sin and point them to Christ. We use the rod of discipline with our children at the appropriate ages to show them their consequences to our sin. But there's a Savior who ultimately will save us from the ultimate consequences of sin. When we pray for our children, we pray for their salvation. When we sin, we confess our sin in light of the gospel. We talk to our children about sin and the cross. We're constantly proclaiming the gospel. Now, let me just apply this for a moment in a particular way. Our children are sinners accountable to God, so when they sin, their sin is first and foremost against God. Parents, it's not against us. You can have a child-centered home and not a God-centered home. I've talked about that. That would be in the parenting class as well. But did you know you can have a parent-centered home instead of a God-centered home? 
What does that parent-centered home look like? Well, children exist for the parents' enjoyment and happiness rather than the glory of God. And therefore, their children's sin is treated as if it's first and foremost against the parent rather than God. So the parent is offended. The parent gets angry. The parent is the focus. Parents, we're not the focus of our homes. Jesus Christ is the focus of our homes. The gospel is to be the focus of our homes. And so the proper goal of parenting should be to parent in such a way so as to be used as an ambassador of Christ to point our children to Christ that they might be saved. And if they are saved by the grace of God, then to be used as a servant of Christ to disciple our children. And so we're to have Christ-centered, gospel-centered homes that are proclaiming Christ. And that is to be constant in our parenting. Why? Because our children are sinners. They will have a works-oriented way of thinking. As much as you tell them, it's by grace. In their fallen state, they're going to think they need to be good enough to earn salvation. No, it's in Christ, in Christ alone. They'll be prone to trust their upbringing. The fact that they come to church with you, that they hear the word of God. No, you must place your faith in Christ. You keep pointing them to Christ. You keep pointing them to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Be a proclaiming parent. The doctrines of grace teach us our children are sinners totally depraved. Therefore, The main focus and goal of parenting is to proclaim the gospel to them. So the doctrines of grace rightly understood and applied produces believing parents. We believe what God's word says about our children and proclaiming parents. The the gospel is the center of our homes and our parenting. But thirdly, it produces trusting parents. Trusting parents. Now, what do I mean by trusting parents? Well, first I mean that we're trusting God. And that means that we trust in and rest in the means that God has given by which sinners are saved. We don't trust in ourselves, in our ability to bring our children to salvation. We don't parent perfectly. We are sinners. We don't trust in any other means other than what God has given us. And here's where the intersection of the things I've been preaching on come together again. Remember how the doctrines of grace affect evangelism and missions? The God-ordained means of bringing sinners to salvation is the proclamation of the gospel. And that is true in our homes as well. This is where we go back to the doctrine of irresistible grace and effectual calling. Who can change the heart of a spiritually dead child? Only God can. Only God can do this. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we understand that is a work of God. It is a work of God, the Holy Spirit. They must be born again of the Spirit. They must be regenerated. How does God bring this work about in the hearts of our children? What is the means by which God effectually calls sinners out of darkness into light, from death into life? by means of the proclamation of the gospel. So what I mean by trusting parents is we are trusting the God-ordained means by which he saves sinners. That needs to be applied to our homes. We don't neglect the God-ordained means of the general call, the proclamation of the gospel, but we trust in the God-ordained means. James 1 verse 18 says this, 
In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's a statement of what God does in salvation. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. He causes us to be born spiritually. How? By the word of truth. If our children are to be saved, it is because our sovereign God, in the exercise of his will, James 1.18 says, it's because our sovereign God does a powerful work he brought us forth, James 1.18 says. How? By His powerful Word. By the Word of truth. Take verses like that where you understand salvation and rest in them. In the exercise of His will, our sovereign God, He brought us forth. That is a powerful work of God. By a powerful Word, by the Word of truth. And therefore, we trust in that means by which our children are saved. We take what we talked about with evangelism and we apply it to the home. We proclaim the unadulterated truth of the gospel to our children, trusting God who is sovereign and powerful and able to save as he wills. Therefore, you won't revert, just like we don't in evangelism in general, we don't revert to some man-made method or means by which we might get our children quote-unquote, to be saved or to pray a prayer. No, we trust the God-ordained means. And so the doctrines of grace, rightly understood and applied, produces believing parents. We believe God's word and what it says about our children. Proclaiming parents, proclaiming the gospel, the center of our homes. Trusting parents who trust in the God-ordained means of saving sinners. But fourthly, praying parents. The doctrines of grace, rightly understood and applied, produces praying parents. We should be praying to God for the salvation of our children. Now, some often ask the question, well, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then why pray? The same reason why we preach the gospel to the nations. The same reason why we evangelize. Because God is sovereign. God is saving sinners. And he does so through the means that we're to trust, the proclamation of the gospel. So a better question would be this. If God is not sovereign, why pray? What if God could hear your prayers? What if he even delighted in your prayers? What if he was good and benevolent, but yet he was unable to answer your prayers? He was not sovereign. What if God commanded you to pray and yet he was powerless to do anything about your prayer? What if God were not absolutely sovereign, did not rule over the world? Then the question would be, why pray to him? If God were not sovereign in salvation, then why would we pray to him for the salvation of sinners? You could pray for the salvation of sinners that you love, but what good would it do? You could pray for God to change their hearts, but what good would it do if he were not sovereign in salvation? See, the question, if God is sovereign, then why pray, is a twisted, unbiblical way of thinking. Although many don't intend it that way. But the right question to ask, if God is not sovereign, then why would I pray? It is because God is sovereign that we pray For the salvation of sinners, it is because God is sovereign that we pray for the salvation of our children. 
It is the sovereignty of God in general and the sovereignty of God in salvation in particular that compels me to pray for my children. The the so-called Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray begins, Our Father who is in heaven. He's in heaven. He's the heavenly Father. He rules. He reigns over all. He's the creator of all things. The sustainer of those things He's made. He is ruling. He is working out His salvation. You see how this feeds into understanding the world we live in? Understanding what God is doing in saving sinners to the praise of the glory of His grace? God is sovereign. Why would I pray to a powerless and sovereignless God? It would be absurd to do so. But He is sovereign. Remember, and again, a lot of this is application. I'm recalling to your mind what I preached on already. Remember when I preached on Romans 9, the doctrine of reprobation? under this series on the doctrines of grace. And the Apostle Paul talks about the doctrine of election. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, the doctrine of unconditional election, the doctrine of reprobation. The Apostle Paul proclaimed those things in Romans 9, and then on the hills of those truths he writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews, is for their salvation. We see in Romans 10 verse 1 that prayer and the sovereignty of God and salvation are not incompatible. They're completely compatible. The doctrine of unconditional election, the doctrine of reformation does not hinder our prayers. It stirs us up to pray. And the Apostle Paul prayed for the salvation of those Jews who were lost, unbelievers, Because he understood God is the author of salvation and sovereign in salvation. So you see, the doctrines of grace compel us to be praying parents because he is sovereign. So rightly understood, the doctrines of grace produces believing parents, proclaiming parents, trusting parents, praying parents. But then let me also add this, loving parents. For if God is gracious and loving to undeserving sinners, how can I not be motivated by love in my parenting? We're to be loving parents, compassionate parents. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Although sin has affected the relationship of parents to children and children to parents, it is a common grace that fathers have compassion on their children. And the psalmist there states it as a matter of fact in order to illustrate the Heavenly Father's compassion. Parent out of love for God and parent out of a heart of love and compassion for your children. Be loving parents. Love God and love your children. The psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 103, verse 14, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God knows our frame. He knows that we're made of dust, that we're frail, weak, sinful human beings even. And so when tempted parents to be impatient or unloving with your children, remember their frame. It's like yours. It's like mine. 
We know what that's like. We know our frame. We're but dust, so to speak. We're frail. We're weak. We know what it's like to be a sinner who battles indwelling sin. Our children are sinners, and they need to be reconciled to God. They have souls. They'll spend eternity in heaven or in hell. And when you keep this at the forefront of your mind, then you have compassion upon your children. When you have this at the forefront of your thinking and choose to relate to your children based on this truth, then your disposition toward your children will be sweet, not sour. It will be kind, not cruel. It will be compassionate. And then your instruction will be from a heart of compassion and love. Your discipline will be from a heart of compassion and love. You will speak to them from a heart of compassion and love. Your faith-filled, proclamation-filled, prayer-filled parenting will be from a heart of love and compassion. And so the doctrines of grace are the doctrines of grace. That God is kind. Yes, He's kind in, in common grace. He causes the sun to shine even on the wicked and those who do not acknowledge Him. But oh, what a gracious God to save sinners. And in light of that, we're to have compassion upon our children. We're to be loving parents. So we should pray this, God, grant me always to parent from a heart of love for my children. For you have shown kindness even to sinners. And you've shown the greatness of your love to save sinners. So God, give me love for my children. The doctrines of, of grace should be that which motivates us to be kind to those who don't know Christ. For we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Now how much more to our children? We know their frame. We know their fallen condition. So the doctrines of grace, rightly understood and applied, produces loving, compassionate children, excuse me, parents, toward their children. But lastly, it produces persevering parents. I want to just encourage you as parents in light of these things. The parenting is not an event. It's a process, isn't it? We don't parent in a day and then it's over. We parent for years. And so as you believe God's word about your children, as you proclaim the gospel to your children, as you trust the God-ordained means by which he saves sinners, as you pray for your children, as you seek to love your children... Persevere in these things. When it doesn't seem that your children are listening and they don't have ears to hear, persevere in these things. When your children are not heeding your instruction from God's Word, persevere in these things. When your children reject the gospel and continue in their rebellion against God, don't stop believing God's Word. Don't stop proclaiming the gospel. Don't stop trusting the God-ordained means by which he saves sinners. When they reject the gospel and have not believed on Christ, don't stop praying for them. And don't stop loving your children. Persevere in these things. Be a persevering parent in light of these truths. And then you will be, by the grace of God, a faithful parent. And that is our goal, isn't it? God is sovereign in these things. And we're simply to be faithful. So persevere, parents. 
In this way, let the gospel shape your parenting. Let the doctrines of grace direct your parenting. And let the grace of God in Christ permeate your parenting. And in this way, we will glorify God in our parenting. And God in His grace, as He wills, will save our children to the glory of His grace. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do not know your sovereign will in regards to our children. It is the secret will. It is unrevealed to us. Lord, even as in our evangelism, we don't proclaim the gospel in a way that distinguishes between the elect and the non-elect. We don't have knowledge of that. That's your knowledge, not ours. We're to proclaim the gospel, trusting the God-ordained means. Father, may we apply that to our homes as well. May we be faithful as parents to do what you have called us to do. Lord, I pray that the doctrines of grace and in particular the doctrine of total depravity would shape our parenting. Lord, we thank you that you have given us these good gifts of children. Lord, that we can rejoice in that good gift of children. That we can rejoice in those children made in your image. But Lord, they're accountable to you. And they're sinners. So Lord, may the gospel, we pray, be the center of our parenting. May our parenting indeed be a type of rescue mission that ultimately is seeking that our children be rescued from the wrath to come, that they would place their faith in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Father, I pray that we as parents would trust you in this and trust your God-ordained means that where we would rest in you, that we would not parent out of fear, that we would not revert to means that where the world has devised that might accomplish some temporal goals but not the ultimate goal of the salvation of our children. Father, I pray that we would be those who plead with you for the salvation of our children. We'd be a church that pleads for the salvation of the children you have given to us. Father, I pray that we'd be those who persevere in these things as we love our children and so glorify you. And God, it is our prayer that you would save our children. Father, we pray for those that are young and those who are older. God, save our children that they may glorify you for your grace. All to your glory, we pray. Lord, we would rejoice in your kindness if you would be merciful to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.